sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome to episode 46 of You Don't Have to Yell. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here to deliver another kick to the dingling of our two-party duopoly. I just thought of that now. Great tagline. Now, in last week's episode, I spoke with Jeff Gregory, a former Southern Democrat who found his way to the very conservative Constitution Party and became a devoted fan of Donald Trump after seeing the way globalization had devastated the manufacturing-based economy in the region he was born and raised, and realizing that the establishment of both major parties weren't going to fix the problem. And this week, we've got Nathaniel Lane, who was raised in a Republican household and eventually found his way to the Green Party for almost the exact same reasons. Now, Nathaniel is co-chair of Ohio's Green Party and join me to discuss the current state of the economy, the Green Party's plan to rectify some of the imbalances in it, and also, also challenged my love of capitalism in a system that produces billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. As with Jeff, Nathaniel really gave me a different perspective on some long-held beliefs I had and made for a fascinating conversation. I'll be back at the end to explain more, and until then, listen on. Now, you're from, you're born and raised in Cincinnati, is that right? Yes. Uh, the suburbs just to the north of Cincinnati, actually, uh, Fairfield, uh, which is in Butler County, which is the county immediately to the north of uh, Hamilton County, where Cincinnati is located. You and I, I know from our earlier conversation, we kind of started with the same upbringing, which is you, you came from a fairly conservative Republican household, right? Yeah, uh, two of them, actually. My, okay. uh, my parents divorced when I was 12, and when my mother remarried and my father remarried, they both married within the party. I don't think that was obviously their intent, but it just yeah. kind of <laughs> happened, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I grew up in two Republican households. My uh, father was an aerospace engineer. Uh, my stepfather worked at the same uh, company my father did at one point and came from uh, the Marines. So they each kind of had a, a very old school, conservative, borderline libertarian uh, political philosophy. And uh, okay. each of their respective wives just kind of followed their lead. Yeah, yeah. And so to, I guess to, to ask a question, my dad often asks me, where, where did things go wrong? <laughs> Uh, honestly, really, I don't know if you would say it was wrong. I think, uh, the libertarian side of both my, uh, stepfather and my father's political outlook, uh, really informed kind of my break from Republican orthodoxy. Um, mm -hmm. I saw it as a, a welcome change from the, uh, this would have been late eighties, early nineties, I suppose. Yeah. And if you remember that time period, there was a lot of disillusionment with the Republican Party itself. Ross Perot sure. had his run in 92. And uh, my, my parents themselves kind of shared that disillusionment. And it percolated down to me as a teenager. And the Democrats weren't really considered an uh, acceptable uh, place for me to pour my energies into as a teenager. <laughs> yeah. So I could rebel safely with the Libertarian Party and not really disturb the apple cart too much. I kind of had the same break where I, I worked, so I, I volunteered for uh, William Weld, who was our governor mm -hmm. uh, at the time, 
uh, back in 96, uh, he ran against John Kerry, who, you know, then Senator John Kerry. And so I volunteered for Weld's campaign. And uh, I was definitely, you know, same thing, uh, raised Republican household. I I believed in, in, in some Republican orthodoxy, at least on the fiscal side. And I think what I saw happen and where my kind of move away from the party happened was just during the, the, the Bush W years. Yeah, it was pretty bad right then. I mean, I know a lot of people moved to, to the Libertarian Party from uh, the Republican Party at that time uh, due to disillusionment. Yeah. Over, uh, some of those policies that were occurring under the, the Bush administration in those early yeah. years. Yeah, and I actually, I ended up, I voted for Johnson in 2012. So the okay. second, second Obama uh, election, I voted for Johnson just because, I mean, it's Massachusetts, so my vote. yeah truly doesn't matter no Uh, it's pretty well decided there unfortunately yeah yeah and so you were so you were libertarian for a while and then my teens true true to young adulthood and then when i got out on my own and Mm -hmm. i I further saw the world that was when i really kind of discovered the greens okay Uh, that was the late 90s you know in 98 99 uh 2000 right around the time that nader was running yeah immediately preceding that time um you know the Clinton administration wasn't really exactly inspiring for the left either. That mm-hmm. was the thing that was really unique about those two presidencies, about Bush and then Clinton subs- uh, subsequent to him, was that uh, neither of those really uh, excited or appealed to their respective parties like um, you would kind of expect, I suppose. It's funny you say that because I do feel like the – the Democratic Party began to veer away from its traditional working class roots around the Clinton administration. Yes. And, uh, and, and it's funny because it, it's funny that Hillary Clinton just happened to be the Democratic candidate at a time when all those seeds that were planted during her husband's administration came to fruition. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. if you look, I mean, the entire march towards globalization not to say globalization necessarily is is a bad thing on its face, but certainly the march to unfettered globalization at the expense, at the unfair expense of, of American workers, in my mind, was really seeded back during that period of time. You, I mean, you had NAFTA, and then subsequent yeah. to that, you had all everything that was going on with the World Trade Administration, uh, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, World Trade Organization. I remember it was 99, I think, there were pretty massive protests in Seattle, or was that 2000? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was 99 or 2000. And uh, there were actually a lot of Greens that I know who were on the ground at those protests. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a very strong undercurrent of change at that point in time that was kind of nipped in the bud when Bush came in and the 911 attacks happened. And I did yep. feel the echoes of the 90s and the 2000 election and, two, and 2016 very acutely. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, like here in Boston, we we made out okay because of globalization. You know, we're, we're mm-hmm. a tech hub. So we we did fine. Uh, what did you see in Ohio during those changes? Uh, honestly, you have to consider, I mean, I was a teenager. I was born in 76. Sure. So much of what transpired uh, as a result of NAFTA was very much a slow moving train wreck that I was becoming educated about the history of everything as the wreck was occurring, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. 
Ohio really saw manufacturing gutted pretty badly. Uh, the automotive industry in Detroit and in Michigan um, really had a lot of support um, throughout the Midwest. Ohio was no exception to that. You know, it's only a short three or four hour drive north to, to reach Detroit itself. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine there were significant chunks of the supply chain uh, scattered throughout Ohio, Pennsylvania, et cetera. And ever since, uh, ever since that deal went through in the 90s, uh, there was a definite uh, acceleration of the exodus of manufacturing from Ohio. And mm-hmm. so we're kind of considered part of the Rust Belt now, rightfully so. We've got numerous cities throughout the state that are old industrial manufacturing hubs and their populations are half what they used to be and the infrastructure is rusted and the cr- concrete is crumbling and it's uh, it's a sad state of affairs, and that obviously has highlighted some of the uh, anti-immigrant and xenophobia within Ohio, because mm-hmm. there are people that want to point the finger somewhere, and mm-hmm. ultimately, rightfully or wrongfully, they um, they looked at that deal, and rather than looking at the politicians who passed it, they look at the people who actually end up being impacted by it and blame them. And this is something that we I've talked about again and again in this podcast is, you know when people aren't being cared for, they're going to look for somebody to blame. Um, and, and what I saw during the, during Trump's campaign is, you know, obviously I, I I think there's, there was, there's definitely a, a justified anger and, and I think a justified target at some of the trade deals, uh, that hit the Midwest, but, the accompanied xenophobia and accompanied racism is, really a line he didn't even have to cross to be frank no, um in, really. in in my mind but i remember listening to him talk and you know i went to school just outside of chicago and i remember thinking like that's gonna work in the midwest yeah i remember thinking that specifically so you know obviously like you're you're kind of living in it and at some point you you decided to make the the transition to the green party what were the what were the policies that really attracted you to them well fundamentally in my view, the Green Party is a left libertarian party. Um, mm-hmm. There's definitely uh, some commonality between the Greens and the Democrats on a multitude of issues, but there's just as much commonality between the libertarian party and the Green Party, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to issues like civil liberties, um, protection from large centralized governmental power. Um, the the drug issue, legalization of cannabis, I'm not going to lie, was a pretty attractive issue to me <laughs> in the late 90s yeah. um, as a young adult. Uh, yeah. And with the, with the state of drug laws in America at that time, it's easy to mm-hmm. forget, but 96, 97, 98, 99, I don't – when did California legalize for medicinal? It was – Oh, it was it was like I mean I don't I, if it was ten years ago. It was in the two thousands. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. So people forget how quickly things have changed. But you know, back in ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, when the Green Party was out there advocating for not just decriminalization, legalization, and regulation, as well as decriminalization of other drugs, that was a very revolutionary position to take. And the only other political party at the time really staking out that position was the Libertarian Party. Um. The appeal for me, though, came from my awareness as a young adult, um, a really truly high school student, but it really came to fruition as a young adult, just to the uh, scope and scale of environmental damage and destruction that had occurred in our nation uh, that was occurring still. And uh, the Green Party and its focus on the environment really spoke to me. Um, They were advocating for solar power 
at a point in time where it was really something you mostly saw in science fiction novels, despite mm-hmm. the fact that the technology existed. It wasn't not as advanced as it is presently. Yeah. And, um, in 97, 98, 99, 2000, when you hear a political party talking about legalization of drugs, decriminalization of drugs, they were talking Medicare for all, properly caring for people with health insurance back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That was not a position the Democrats were taking. That was not a position the Republicans were taking. Um, they were very anti-war. Um, and despite the fact that we weren't engaged in a large-scale war in 97, 98, 99, there was that ever-present shadow of that no-fly zone in Iraq and this constant drumbeat of every three to six months there'd be some missiles fired off whenever mm-hmm. Clinton needed a distraction. And, um, you know, that really kind of provided a fertile environment for somebody who was disillusioned with the Republican Party but simultaneously disillusioned with the Democratic Party to mm-hmm. look for a new home. And it was that it was a very much a Ford-focused uh, future-driven political party. And mm-hmm. to me, in the late 90s, coming up on the turn of the millennium, was a really exciting concept. You know, this new political party that represented all these distinct new values that were not really being carried by any of the major political parties. And Ralph Nader came along and really crystallized that into a, oh, wow, we can be successful with this. And Ralph Nader was the really the first one, well, I wouldn't say the first one blamed as a as a spoiler candidate, but certainly the first green. First because, green. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty amazing how quickly people forgot about Perot. Yeah. All the Democrats who lamented Nader's 3% in 2000, you had no issue with Perot drawing 10 to 15%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's yeah. be honest here. Yeah. Um, Al Gore received a larger vote total and a higher percentage of the vote than Bill Clinton ever did. Yeah. You know, I also, just for the folks listening who might not, remember it. I remember very clearly what the decriminalization of marijuana argument looked like back in the 90s, because it was a very, I mean, Bill Clinton basically had to lie about smoking it in order to get elected. It was still a controversial thing. Yeah, he lied about the fact that he inhaled. Like, I I smoked it, but I didn't inhale it. Like, that made some distinct difference. (laughs) Yeah, and he said he didn't like it anyway, which, if you didn't inhale, it's understandable. Yeah, exactly. You didn't get the real effect of it, so why wouldn't you like it? (laughs) That's it. But my, my, my favorite thing was it was... Any reason to legalize marijuana except I want to smoke it because I want to get high. Like it was like yeah. it, it makes yeah. great rope and mm-hmm. biofuels and it's good for glaucoma and on and on. Yep. Yep. Nope. Now I'm glad people, I, I, you know, I'm in Massachusetts where recreational. Like you weren't uh, allowed to admit it was fun. No, no, that's exactly <laughs> it. Like, like you couldn't, you would never be able to. I, I honestly think we, you know, it, that it probably could have made a lot more progress if people are just like, hey, it's just it's fun to get high, and uh, let's just do that. But they kind of couched it in all these other things. But you know, now we are where yeah, we are. So yeah, yeah. But again, to kind of frame your views for the time, those were still pretty radical. They you really know? were. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to forget that, but. You know, Bernie Sanders comes along in the last two elections, and he's really kind of moved that Overton window over, if you will, a little bit. Yeah. Um, people forget how radical some of those positions really were considered just as recently as, say, 2011 when Occupy Wall Street broke out. Mm-hmm. That's less than a decade ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if you look at the the Green Party's platform on the whole, there are a lot of mirrors with what you saw in Bernie Sanders' platform, 
I there think are there are some commonalities. I'd say the biggest difference is probably um, some of the defense budgetary items that he's supported over the years. Yeah, frowned upon by Greens, but you're absolutely right. For the most part, you know, when you talk about Medicare for all, when you talk about the Green New Deal and the, the desire to save the environment, protect the environment, and simultaneously to put people to work in those environmentally friendly jobs, mm-hmm. a lot of commonality there. I've got a question for you on specific to Ohio, because one of my pet interests is the the military industrial complex as a whole and, oh, yes. and, and the role that that plays in both kind of propping up American industry and also to an extent, maybe negatively influencing American foreign policy. Absolutely. And, and Ohio is one of those states mm-hmm. that has a large or the I would say benefits a lot from that, and the, the 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 target I always look at is the um, the M1 Abrams tank factory in Lima, Ohio, which is a tank that the military said they don't need anymore. Yeah, but and it yet still it, keeps coming off the assembly line. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, number one, I'd love your comment on that, and number two. You know, given how Ohio has been affected by manufacturing, given defense is sort of, pardon the timely expression, but maybe had it on a ventilator, mm-hmm. you know, is, is there a vision? Does the Green Party have a vision for how you, you know, you take those folks building that tank in Lima, Ohio, and maybe get them to work on something else? Oh, absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, that's what the Green New Deal is about, is mm-hmm. re- repurposing those uh, ex- ex- expenditures towards military aims, towards um, peaceful civilian ends and primarily towards the goal of saving the environment and mm-hmm. transitioning us to a renewable energy economy, which mm-hmm. fundamentally is, I think, the, the biggest issue that's facing us, regardless of how expensive oil is presently or not, can't escape the fact that burning it's still going to tear up the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So I think that you could easily look to the strength of Ohio's solar industry as a good example of where some of those skilled uh, workers could be repurposed, some of their, their skills could be re directed towards mm-hmm. a more peaceful environmental focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the largest uh, solar panel manufacturers in America actually are based here in Ohio. Uh, we have a very comparable climate to Germany, which is a very notable uh, leader in European uh, solar market. Mm-hmm. So there's a market overseas already for those panels here because our climate closely resembles the type of uh, solar radiation that occurs there in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from that, I think we're going to need to transition to electric vehicles across the board. So any facility or factory that's manufacturing cars or whether it be military machinery could likewise produce those vehicles as well. But I mean, fundamentally the goal isn't necessarily to put people to work back in the same factory, making something else. Mm -hmm. A lot of what needs to occur in the green new deal is basically going into people's houses and increasing the energy efficiency at those residences. Mm-hmm. And so some of those paychecks might not be as large as those checks that you would see at a defense contractor, but mm-hmm. you generate more jobs with them. So mm-hmm. you benefit more people, maybe not making a hundred thousand, 150,000 a year in a tank factory, but maybe they're making 50,000 a year doing home insulation. And so what do you tell? So the folks who maybe leave that plant and have to make a hundred thousand a year less, what, what makes up the difference or what, what makes that a little more palatable to them, would you say? 
I mean, fundamentally, it's it's once again, you get into the same kind of discussion and argument that you often have with sharing resources. Yeah. And that's yeah. fundamentally what we're talking about here. Resource, a job is a resource, right? Yeah. An income is a form of a resource for an individual. Mm-hmm. And if you have one individual that's making 150000 200000 a year in a secure defense industry job making those tanks that aren't really needed, mm-hmm. but you could break it down into four $50,000 jobs, that supports a whole lot more families and a whole lot more kids. And so it might be a tough sell to that individual factory worker, but I don't believe your sell is necessarily to that factory worker. You're trying to speak to the broader society at large to explain how we need to make a change, how that 0.5% of the workforce needs to probably find another occupation where they make a slightly less income so that we can put 2.5% 2.5% of the workforce to work who presently doesn't have that resource available to them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough sell. I'm not going to lie. Many of these things that we're discussing are not uh, easy changes and they're definitely going to have impacts on individuals. Yeah. We talked about Medicare for all and eliminating the, the profit motive in the, uh, the medical industry through, through the insurance, mm-hmm. you know, the predatory nature of the insurance company standing between patients and doctors and providing care. Okay, sounds great. Get rid of the insurance companies. Have it be a relationship strictly between doctor and patient. You know, have a single payer bill cover it all. Well, well, all those people that worked at the insurance companies. Well, what do they do now? You know, so mm-hmm. it, all of these changes fundamentally do require you know some discomfort potentially, but that doesn't mean they aren't changes that necessarily. Uh, shouldn't be taken for the benefit of all of us. Yeah, and I would, I would also say, kind of based on how you framed it there, and maybe it's not the right word to or the right word to use, but in a lot of ways, you're you're shifting the victim, and and the question is, is is it better for someone to lose their job at an insurance company than for someone else to be bankrupted for having cancer? Yeah. Or, or is it better for five people to be employed at 50000 a year than uh, for a service that people need that benefits the environment than one person make 150000 a year for a service? For, exactly. for, yeah, for a vehicle yeah. that the Army isn't asking for. Okay. Uh, I, I, let, me, I let me share this perspective, too. Just I, I'm an electrician by trade, and I've, I've yeah. been in this trade for the vast majority of my adult life. Mm-hmm. And for significant portions of my adult life, including now, what I wouldn't give to work a 40-hour work week. Mm-hmm. I can't get under 50. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's routinely the case with a lot of contractors. They have a calculation to make. Do I, I have this job. I've got these extra projects i got to get done. Do I hire a few more people or do I just give my guys overtime for a few weeks? Mm-hmm. And nine times out of ten, they're going to choose that overtime. Yep. But sometimes it becomes endemic to the point where those employees are working overtime 50, 51 weeks of the year. Now, you have to start to ask yourself a question at that point. Is that really the most beneficial f- way to structure our society? Yeah. For one individual to occupy this position for 60 hours a week, killing themselves physically, overworking themselves, overexerting themselves, while another person sits on the sideline, perhaps who could fill that skilled job doing some unskilled menial labor thing. Whereas you could put two people to work for 30 hours a week doing that job. Yeah. yeah. You know, and there's some redundancy then if somebody gets sick, you got a backup. And so I think fundamentally we have to start to relook at our, our economy because one of the biggest changes that's coming in my view is the decoupling of labor with compensation. It's already happening. 
we have to find a way for people to be able to be compensated and to earn an income without necessarily putting in 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Because I don't believe with the automation that's occurring in our society that there's going to be as much of a justification for the type of hours that people put in. No. And so we've got to find a way to start sharing the workload so that everybody gets a little something to do yeah. and to take care of themselves. Yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, you're what you're seeing now too with the current pandemic is is you're also seeing that in some ways labor is more powerful than it's ever been. Potentially. Uh, you know, I think I, I the what comes to mind to me is the you know the folks working in meatpacking plants or the folks working in supermarkets. Um, you know, these are people who f- have not necessarily had the strongest negotiating position when it comes to salary or benefits. And now that all of a sudden it's become very apparent that these jobs are needed for society to function. Uh, the question is, is what's going to motivate somebody to put their lives in peril effectively to deliver this service? And I think that that's a, I, I think that um, we've, uh, again, kind of getting to the the common thread linking, you know, 1990 to now, I think we have allowed capitalism to progress or to, to grow kind of unfettered without regard to, you know, the fact that capitalism puts a price on labor that isn't always fair. And for years, I think, uh, worker, the workers' rights legislation have been overlooked because you always had the unions, which have gradually kind of lost power. So Yeah, and, and or become merely proxies for what the company wants to do anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it sounds to me like really what the green party is proposing is, is, is in a lot of ways still a, a restructuring of the economy in a a way. I think mm -hmm. one of the biggest changes that a lot of people still fail to realize, and this is the biggest difference between the Democrats green new deal and the green party's green new deal Mm is one of the central facets of, Green Party philosophy is a decentralization of wealth and power. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of our key values. And how that plays out can it can affect a few things. For one, it, it can produce a very disorganized national party. Because <laughs> yeah. you end up with 50 individual chapters, it's technically the Green Confederacy. So um, that poses some organizational challenges, which is a whole separate conversation, probably a whole separate podcast. Right? <laughs> okay. But um, fundamentally, though, what that plays out is um, when it comes to distributing those resources, presently we pay our taxes, it goes to the federal government, and they dish it out to all these local you know, defense contractors. Mm-hmm. I think the Green Party views this as much more of a, uh, a situation where the states and the localities need to have more decision-making power on how those funds are being spent. It shouldn't be the situation where Washington points the finger at defense appropriations need to occur in XYZ community, and so it happens. It mm-hmm. should be more of an issue where the federal government sends those funds that would otherwise be sent to those military investments within the state, just be sent to the state, but with the stipulation that they be utilized towards various Green New Deal activities, various environmentally friendly rejuvenation type activities. Mm-hmm. So it would very much leave a lot of the decision-making power and the control in the hands of uh, local states and communities as opposed to in the hands of the federal government. So yeah. in that sense, there's some commonality with the Libertarian Party. I was going to say, that's that's a very kind of libertarian, or 
it sounds like a very libertarian approach. Basically, it's in my view, the Green Party is the true libertarian party because a true libertarian has to be opposed to concentrations of wealth and power mm -hmm. in all sectors of society, whether mm -hmm. it be government or whether it be in the private sector, because a concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a private corporation is just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than that same power being vested in the hands of a strong central governmental authority. Yeah, I, I'd agree. And I, I, there's, there's a, something I'm going to throw out at you that, mm -hmm. that might be uh, controversial, but I'll, 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 I'll say it anyway, which oh, is I, I am actually a big fan of American billionaires. I'm a big fan of the fact that somebody like Bill Gates and, or Jeff Bezos, for example, can, can have an idea and grow fantastically wealthy with it. I have um, to disagree with that respectfully. Okay, but. okay. so <laughs> Go ahead and let me let me, let me get let me get to the let me get to the end of it, and we'll see if we we uh, we agree. The second part of that equation is that I am I, I am a I am a big fan of that. I think that that ha is an engine for dynamism. Is it, it's an engine for ingenuity? And to be frank, speaking, you know, chauvinistically from a national standpoint. Uh, it is what keeps uh, America uh, the world's prominent economy. I mean, we don't we don't log on to you know we don't log on to uh, VK, the Russian version of Facebook. You know, we don't uh, do a search on Baidu. But I, I guess that the but the second part of that equation is that I do feel that with that creation of fantastic wealth, there should always there should always be there should also be a sense that there was a civilization that allowed that to happen and that as a member of that civilization you should have to give a certain amount of that back so i i mean i personally feel like our tax policies don't to be frank don't tax the incredibly wealthy enough and so as a result we end up with this wide we end up with uh with this wide disparity and we end up with a situation where um where you know the where many things that were considered rights at one point are now really there for those who can afford it. Maybe healthcare and education being two among them. Yeah. So I'll let you disagree with me, or I'll let you comment on that now. Um. Yeah. Fundamentally, I think there there comes a point where there's only so much money you can actually spend mm -hmm. um, in your life, and there needs to be a recognition of, you know, nobody needs 145 billion dollars really. Um, yeah. If, got 145 billion people or not 145 145 million in the people in the world uh don't have a thousand dollars to their name mm -hmm. um why do 145 billion dollars sit in one person's bank account um it's one thing to have you know that incentive for the ability for somebody to you know be dynamic and earn money and gain wealth but uh there, I think there needs to be some kind of a logical limit to that to the point where if one individual and I don't even know who draws that line or what that line is, but I think it's pretty clear to me that that line has been crossed. Mm -hmm. um, you've got rampant poverty, uh, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. Amazon paid nothing in taxes last year, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. I'm mm -hmm. not really sure what Jeff Bezos paid in taxes last year, but wouldn't be surprised if he had managed with his accountants to ensure he didn't really pay anything. Um, and when you've got a man with $145 billion who pays less taxes than an individual who makes $25,000 a year mm -hmm. working for that man, mm -hmm. we've got something wrong in our tax policy. Mm -hmm. um, 
I mean, it's a you could have that long philosophical debate about you know individuals' right to earn prosperity, but um, I it's been I think to to be honest, uh-huh. that whole concept and society's willingness to allow individuals to to pursue wealth is really kind of hindered by individuals who to take advantage of it like Jeff Bezos. There's yeah, no reason yeah. for one man to possess that much wealth. His employees could all be paid an extra few thousand dollars a year for a few years, and he could still sit around with 50, 60, 70 billion. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, if you've got a vastly successful company that employs that many people on that large of a scale, you really do have the ability to make some significant difference for good or for ill. And in my opinion, if you're pocketing all that money, I don't consider that necessarily the most uh, positive altruistic effort by an individual. Yeah. Uh, it's greed. I think it's greed. You get to a certain point, you spend how many thousand dollars in a day? Hey folks. Now, it should be obvious to anyone who's listened to more than one episode of this podcast that America needs more voices in the political conversation, and the current system is designed to keep that from happening. And the only way we're going to get a government that truly represents the diverse opinions of all Americans is by removing partisan gimmickry from the House of Representatives and making it a truly proportional representative body. I know it sounds boring, but the reality is, is what starts in the House leads to the Senate. What leads to the Senate leads to the White House. And the only way you're going to get a more diverse set of characters at the top is if you start at the most grassroots level of American government. And so to do that, we need an army. And I need your help enlisting recruits. Now, to start, You can help by sharing YDHTY by clicking some button on your phone that I still quite haven't figured out what to do, but just, you know, you're smart enough. You can figure it out. Just click share. Share it with the folks you know or with anyone you think might be interested in the cause. Second, jump into the conversation with me on Twitter, Facebook, or by coming by YDHTY.com. I provide additional written content on all three that covers my thoughts on this week's episode and other sundry topics. And I'd love to know what you want to hear about and how we can grow this movement. And that's it. The Big Gino wants me to keep this under a minute and I am well over, but I'll try harder next time. Back to the episode. I think if, if Bezos or Gates were to make half as much, I think they'd still do what they do. Yeah, I, I think I think that's there's the thing. You, yeah. If you have fifteen billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars, don't tell me that your day to day life is really going to change that significantly. <laughs> You're still going to be eating the same quality of food, living in the same quality of house, mm-hmm. riding on that private jet. You, he could easily drop a hundred billion dollars yeah. and not blink an eye. Yep. And there's what three hundred million people in the United States right now, so that breaks down to about what three thousand apiece. Yep. You, that's obscene sorry and i'm just i'm sort of thinking aloud here mm-hmm. but if you if we take and we'll just focus on amazon for the sake of this conversation okay but so if you take a look at amazon for example uh yes amazon for the time was outrageously innovative 
and not just were they innovative in, in the concept, but in their execution. You know, as a business, they're just they're they're a very innovative business in all yeah, ways. I suppose my my take is it's half price books that found the internet. Well, yeah, that's it, it looked, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, was, it was basically timing. If he hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it. Oh, oh there is definitely was, an element of being like the first right guy to discover right fire. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. So, now the the second part and of that, then crude business tactics, just straight cutthroat. You know take out the competition and, and i'm sure if you were to research the history of amazon you're going to see plenty of examples of corpses on the side of the road yeah and and to an extent you know i think the economy is going to be a bit predatory like that uh, you know within an ethic within ethical bounds but i also think you also have a situation where part of the profitability of of amazon is driven by the fact that you don't have to pay uh you know, you don't necessarily always have to pay a livable wage. You don't necessarily have to provide your employees with health care or make sure they're covered in that way. Um, you don't have to worry about the working conditions of the folks over in China who are manufacturing all those cheap goods that are getting sold on your website. And so in a lot of ways, I, I, what I wonder is, is fantastic wealth more a symptom of inequities in the system Yes. Than a sin in and of itself. Does that make I, sense? I would, I would say, in many respects, that's that's probably accurate. It is a symptom of some of the problems within the system, and I believe they're self-perpetuating. Mm-hmm. One of the big issues for Greens is money in politics, the corruption of the political system by money, mm-hmm. money and interests, and that's an argument that's been around for a long time. I mean, the progressives back at the turn of the 20th century were fighting against this particular issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, fundamentally. The, the issue with concentrations of wealth is it generates concentrations of power. You know, Jeff Bezos has the ear of probably any Congress person he wishes to speak to, yeah. right? Any state governor he wishes to pick up the phone and get on the phone, he can probably do that. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of American citizens do not share that luxury, that yep. connection, that ability to reach out to our government officials and request that they do X, Y, Z to benefit our own individual interests, Mm-hmm. And that's where the problem comes in, because fundamentally in a democracy, even in a republic, you have the basic principle that you, you all have some measure of equal expression of your voice within said democracy, I would hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a republic, you have representatives, perhaps, who represent you. It's not a direct democracy. So one can make arguments about how beholden those representatives are to their constituents. Either way you look at it, in a democracy, you want to see some measure of equity and the voices being heard within that democracy, or else you get a perversion of the people's voices. Yeah. When you have money pouring into our political system the way that you do, it ends up perpetuating laws which further perpetuate that economic inequality, and it becomes a self-perpetuating vicious cycle. Yeah, and so your your feeling is that there's there's really no way to decouple fantastic wealth from distortions in power effectively. Is Not that, too easily, because yep. for some reason money seems to keep finding its way back into the political process. Yeah, and right. So not able to somehow level the playing field with regards to you know money mm-hmm. and money being speech. It's kind of hard to really say that you've really leveled the playing field with regards to democracy and people's voices within said democracy. Mm-hmm. As far as kind of leveling the playing field or as far as evening out the economy then, you know, obviously we t- we've talked about, you know, Medicare for all. We've talked about uh, the Green New Deal as a way to distribute uh, 
distribute prosperity a little more evenly. You know, what are some of the other green principles that address this issue? For one thing, there's a, a, a universal basic income, mm-hmm. something that the Greens have been calling for for at least 20, 25 years now. Um, and, and recently, that's been getting some champions within the, the Congress, within the Senate and the House mm-hmm. uh, with our current crisis that we're dealing with right now. Um, it's a pretty solid uh, concept when you look at the advances in automation. Um, fundamentally, it's hard to have an economy operate if the people don't have funds with which to spend on items to sustain themselves or entertain themselves, however mm-hmm. you look at it. Yeah. So we've reached a point with automation where you are seeing productivity gains year in and year out from our workforce. And yet you don't necessarily see the uh, equal distribution of those wages, the wealth that's accrued from that productivity gains. Mm-hmm. Most of that's poured into the, you know, the companies themselves into the stock market and to the CEOs. I, I find this all really interesting here because, you know, yeah, well, because, you know, I, 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 it, getting back to, to my roots, you know, my dad was, uh, you know, son of immigrants, as were my, 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 as was my mom. Uh, and he came and, you know, worked his way driving cabs and building chimneys through law school. And, you know, what made him Republican was when he finally started making money and the Democrats around him told him that he didn't deserve it. And that kind of hit a note with him. You know, that kind of struck Mm -hmm. a chord, got him, you know, got him riled up and shifted his mindset. And so that sort of was imparted onto me. And I've always been a fan of, uh, I've always been a fan of capitalism as a result. And, you know, um, and, and listening to, to everything you're telling me, I think the thing I'm finding really interesting is that the economy is structured a certain way and to benefit certain behaviors and to benefit certain outcomes and benefit certain people. And if those benefits are just, then you have a just economy. And if those benefits are unjust, you have an unjust economy. You have unjust outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of what I'm hearing from you and a lot of what's kind of you know striking a chord with me here is that the, 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 the beneficiaries of wealth and the way uh, and 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 the way the distribution of wealth is structured is effectively geared towards perpetuating inequity. Is that am I here? Am I summing up what you're saying yeah, properly? Or? Yeah, pretty effectively. I mean, and that's something that even the first individual who coined the term libertarian was a French philosopher back in 1843, 1845, mm-hmm. 46, and his his perception of what liberty was mm-hmm. was that protection from oppressive. Uh, power, whether it be governmental or financial. And at the time, it was just as much financial as it was governmental. Yeah. You still were seeing the vestiges of of feudalism still in Europe in the 1800s. And I think we're kind of careening towards that again here uh, in our nation. You know, we we absolutely have an oligarchy. And Mm -hmm. um, there's a real risk of that uh, wealth divide uh, perpetuating to the point where it can't be easily reconciled without serious disruptions to society. And I, I've got a kid, I've got a wife, uh, I've got a business. I don't want to see, you know, society in chaos and, 
violence, but it's been the pattern throughout history is that seems to be the one thing that ends up kind of resetting the balance when it gets a little bit too far out of balance. I mean, yeah, I can't tell you the number of people on my Facebook feed that have a uh, popped up with a guillotine and a meme over the course of the last six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, fundamentally, uh, it's hard to be free. Um, and have liberty in a society in which you have individuals that have that much wealth and power. Yeah. And uh, it really kind of, as I said, it perpetuates itself. And they don't give up power easily. No, they, they don't. They, they don't. And I, I mean, I myself as a small business owner, as an electrician, I've been on both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. I've been an employee working for a contractor and yeah. I've been a contractor with employees. And the one thing that I have to say, I think is, is proven that I have seen has proven to be true in my small time in business has been that fundamentally the people that are getting ahead and making the most money are the ones that are charging the most in relation to what they have to spend. Mm-hmm. There's almost an inherent um, sort of theft that occurs within capitalism. Mm-hmm. You're constantly trying to one up the next guy to get a little bit more than what you paid for something. That's what mm-hmm. profit is fundamentally, right? Yeah. And if you don't profit in capitalism, you're not doing right. But what profit really is, is you're finding something that's worth a dollar and you're selling it to somebody else for a buck 50 or a buck 25. And that builds up after a while. Mm-hmm. That little theft, that penny here, that nickel there, that 10 cents there. That's how Jeff Bezos has $145 billion. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in this concept earlier on that you talked about the decoupling of labor with compensation. And we talked a little bit about universal basic income. Uh, And we've obviously talked about, uh, you know, Medicare for all has popped up here and there. And if I'm painting kind of the ideal world, so wave a magic wand, entire U.S. government, top to bottom, it's all green, executive, House of Representatives, Senate, mm-hmm. everyone. Um, it seems to me that what you have is you have a uh, a country where your the basic necessities are provided for, so healthcare, food, and and shelter. You know all the basic necessities, and then beyond that, whatever income you have is effective is effectively gravy. Like what extras do you want on top of just these basics? Yeah, um, I mean there are a lot of uh, a lot of nations throughout Europe that have very similar uh, social systems and governmental systems and economic systems. It's not very hard to fathom uh, the United States functioning in that manner. It's it's so much of what is going on. I believe with the United States is we are still locked in this. Uh, we won World War Two, you know, hundred percent. We won World War Two, um, and then we won the Cold War. Yeah. Right. So we got what we want. We want. We got to. We got to keep. We got to be on top, right? Yeah. And I think that's what drives a lot of this. Uh, this defense spending. It isn't so much defense as just like a passive, ingrained. Well, I mean, Eisenhower freaking talked about it. The military-industrial complex. He was going to call it the military-congressional-industrial <laughs> complex because he even recognized at the time how interwoven Congress was. In, in the financing of the defense industry and how there was already this perverse creep of money influencing governmental decisions. That yeah. governmental policy was already being 
shifted away from what it really needed to be at that point in time towards military ends when it didn't need to be. And Eisenhower, as a wartime general, of, of anybody to see it and speak it, he yeah. was the man to do so. And nothing has really changed. That has only accelerated over the course of the last 50-plus years since Eisenhower left office. So, I mean, it's really hard to expect your foreign policy or your domestic policy to make sense when it's driven by this um, this incessant need to prepare for a conflict or a war and to be in a position where you are stationed in every single continent save for Antarctica, although we probably have people there too. <sighs> it's it's a little excessive. You look at any other nation in the world, nobody else has that sort of military footprint around the world. And that ends up carrying a very, a very heavy burden on the American people, places a very heavy burden on the American people. The amount of tax revenue that is spent mm-hmm. to cover the fuel, to pay for the airlines that transport the fuel, <laughs> the planes in the air or the tankers that transport fuel in the ocean to the aircraft carrier in the ocean. I mean, yeah. the amount of fossil fuels that are expended to keep that enterprise going alone is is pretty obscene in its own right. And so from the perspective of a Green New Deal, mm-hmm. if you just shrink that footprint back to a defensive footprint as opposed to the offensive footprint that we have right now, that one step alone is going to do wonders towards addressing uh, climate change and our emissions, as well as simultaneously reducing the expenses going out the door in the first place. Before you even bother spending any money on any of these environmental upgrades at home, solar panels or insulation in the homes, just by stopping sending that money overseas, you're going to reduce your CO2 output. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm so glad you said that. And the the one point I'd like to make here is that if the current pandemic tells us anything, it tells us that the strongest line of defense would have been to let the guy who makes your salad take a sick day. Yeah. And then maybe give him a doctor to go to while you're at it. You know, and it just goes to show how, you know, pumping tons of money at an enemy that has yet to rear its head is, is, is anachronistic. Um, I, I have a, I'll, I'll throw a theory out there. Um, and, and it's something I've thought of is, is if you look at history every 75 years, everything falls apart. American history, you know, so end of the revolutionary war to the civil war, 75 years, the whole planet somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and you know, you got, you you know, you mentioned this earlier where systems perpetuate and systems, you know, self-perpetuate. Until they can't perpetuate themselves anymore. And there's always some breaking point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily what you would expect it to be. Well, case in point now, I think. And, and, and I think part of the reason is that within 75 years, the people who were alive during the old era are no longer around Mm -hmm. or there aren't all of the memories that they had that could have warned us or prepared us are gone. Exactly. And if you look at the, the, if you look at Trumpism and I, you know, I look at my parents who were born right at the end of world war Mm two, they have no frame of reference outside of this, uh, Cold War, yeah, and, and, ne- and, and never-ending upside. Yeah. Incomes were rising. Uh, people were buying homes. You know, yeah. it was it was nothing but upside because you were on the ground floor of a new world order. 
Yep. And you were on the ground floor of a world order where America was at the center. And um, what happened after that order in World War II specifically is America and, and became the provider of the world's reserve currency. And uh, mm-hmm. it, and if you look at the last 30 years, our chief- oil. It, exactly. And our chief export- Backed by our military. A hundred percent. And <laughs> and here's the other thing, though, is what a lot of people don't realize is they say America doesn't export anything. We export dollars. If, mm-hmm. if you want to do transactions internationally, if you are, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and you want to buy wheat from Ukraine, you need to do that in USD. And so to do that, the U.S. government has to keep a certain amount of debt. And we've used that debt for less than productive means. I mean, all the while, we could have been funding education. We could have been funding infrastructure. Um, However, that largesse has been directed to largely, like you said, the military and largely to things that are maybe less productive. Um, So Definitely not constructive. You're in Ohio. You're in the, the battleground state. You were I in, guess so. It's yeah. honestly it's more red than anything else right now. It seems like it. It seems yeah, like it's, it. But it's been pretty solid red. Obama carried it in twelve, and he carried it in eight. But he did. Oh, it was a horrible year for the Democrats in twenty ten in Ohio. Yeah, and uh, twenty fourteen wasn't very good either. And twenty sixteen was a pretty solid Republican year across the board. Although gerrymandering doesn't hurt. Oh, gerrymandering is a huge factor. The, the Ohio legislature, I think, has uh, maybe. 53 to 54% of the votes were allocated towards Republican candidates, and yet they hold probably 65% of the seats. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty bad. The Senate's even worse. And then they own all of the uh, statewide offices presently mm -hmm. Um, Secretary of State, you know, Lieutenant Governor, Governor, Attorney General, Treasurer, all of them basically. So, what's it like trying to organize and nominate and run green party candidates in that environment well a lot of it depends on where you're at in the state um Mm -hmm. despite the fact that ohio is blood red the urban areas uh cleveland columbus cincinnati notably dayton also Mm -hmm. and toledo uh, there are pretty strong democratic parties present in each of those cities and in those particular cities have been the locations where the green parties had the most success as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it just comes down to sheer population size that you kind of have to reach before you start to get a really engaged electorate and are able to sustain multiple political parties. Mm-hmm. Um, my own personal experience, I was active with the Democrats from uh, 2009 through to like 2013 Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where I was an elected precinct executive on the Hamilton County Democratic Party's executive committee, um, which essentially meant that I was the point of contact to my neighborhood and my community. I was in charge of canvassing all those doors when election time came around, mm-hmm. reaching out to all those voters to get a you know a feel for who their preferred candidates were, things of that nature. But uh, it was an actual elected office. You know, you had to run for the position <clears throat> and collect votes. The majority of those positions are. Uh, uncontested Uh Uh, some of them are unfilled and the same holds true when you get in with with the republican party as well i'd say maybe a third of their county seats are vacant 
you get out into the rural counties in the state of Ohio, there is no Democratic Party. There is no <laughs> party. It's just a Republican Party. We don't have the ability to run candidates across the state yet. Uh, I'd say we didn't have that ability when we had party status. Um, now that we've lost party status, it's obviously that much more challenging um, because signature thresholds have all gone up now. So just getting candidates on the ballot now has become exponentially more difficult. So just if you don't mind explaining that to me, so you, so Green Party lost party status in Ohio? Yes, unfortunately. We had gained it in 2008. There were there was a lawsuit filed on behalf of the uh, Cynthia McKinney campaign mm-hmm. to gain her ballot access. And at the time, um, there was just the Republican and Democratic Party on the ballot. The lawsuit was a joint suit between um, the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, I think Constitution, Socialists, and a few others were also involved in the suit. But the prime litigants were the Green Party and the Libertarian Party. Mm-hmm. Um, our most recent co-chair uh, was the active lawyer on that particular case. After gaining it via court challenge in 08, um, we had been on the ballot for a decade. Um, but basically what occurred is the threshold uh, for maintaining ballot access continued to move, and the political playing field likewise continued to move. So we saw registration numbers increase uh, in every single primary election um, from 2008 up to 2018. Mm-hmm. But uh, in 2008, when we had won the suit, the uh, benchmark was set at 2% needed to be reached by any statewide candidate. So if the Green Party ran a candidate for treasurer, secretary of state, you know, lieutenant governor, governor, whichever, and was able to successfully draw 2% of the vote, they would maintain their ballot line. Mm-hmm. We successfully did that. Um, the Libertarian Party likewise successfully did that in 2010. And then in 2012, they moved the benchmark, or 2014, I should say, they moved the benchmark to the governor's race. They then stated you needed 2% in the governor's race. It had to be the governor's race or the presidential race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We succeeded in getting 3% in that race. The uh, 2016 election, when Jill Stein ran, um, she came in around 1% which was short of that 2% threshold. Mm -hmm. But following that election, they went ahead and moved the threshold up to 3%. And then in the 2018 race, the Libertarian Party regained ballot status, and we were faced with the four-way election, and we got less than 2%. So we lost our ballot line after a decade. Despite seeing increased registration numbers in every single election cycle, despite seeing an increase in our active county chapters and our active membership at our state's uh, central committee level. Um, We were stripped of our ballot line and now offices that formerly require 25 signatures in some cases now require 2,500 signatures. How do you do that now? Because in, you know, 2020. To answer your question right now, we're not because all petitioning efforts have been suspended because of the outbreak of coronavirus but uh, despite that fact, many of these races, we would have a hard time getting candidates on the ballot now. Um, I think the statewide races in particular um, are the most challenging. Uh, to get back on the ballot for president or for governor, we need to collect 43,000 valid signatures. Um, last year, in mm-hmm. 2018, when we got our governor candidate on the ballot, we needed 500. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking 500 versus 43,000, 
regardless of how much organizational capacity you think that you might have, uh, it's it's a pretty steep it's a pretty steep lift, even under ideal circumstances. So uh, at the moment, we we uh, are facing the prospect of not having any candidates on the ballot unless uh, legal action that we're engaged in now is successful, or we receive relief from the governor's office. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me, to be frank, that if you have a system with such a high threshold for access to the ballot, which, I, look, I understand there has to be a threshold. Oh, but, yeah, but, I do, too. I do, too. And I, I think there should be a threshold. But I don't think that threshold should be your performance in an executive level race. hundred. That's kind of what jumps out at me is that it seems like with those with that rule in place, it is impossible for you to have a voice without having some national organization backing you. And Unfortunately, that, that's the truth of the matter. And yeah. it's designed that way on purpose. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why an individual state's election law is now written like that. That's not in our constitution. Yeah. And and it's and it's antithetical to the idea of a locally run government. It's anti- it's a it's a perversion of our democracy and a perversion of our constitution the way that the Democrats and the Republicans have shifted everything to such a partisan duopoly just those two respective political parties are even ever given a voice at the table and instead of us actually making progress as a nation we're pitted against one another and divided now there's almost too much to comment on here so i'm going to try and keep things simple as nathaniel said the current system made to support the two-party duopoly doesn't just remove elected officials from the pressure of public opinion but it also crowds out innovative policy ideas from America's minor parties. And universal health care, the legalization of marijuana, and reducing America's involvement in foreign military conflicts all seemed like radical ideas when the Green Party was promoting them in the early part of this century, and yet they're part of mainstream political conversation today. And now what's more? Both Jeff Gregory and Nathaniel reflect a growing level of discontent over America's two major parties, which are proving unable to govern by any method other than division as time wears on. And now ballot access seems to be an issue we're going to need to dig into at a later episode, as it almost seems as big of an issue as congressional apportionment. The one thing I absolutely loved about the past two guests is how they've really challenged some beliefs that I thought were pretty solid. And Nathaniel pushing me on my views of the accumulation of wealth in this country really got me thinking about the idea that the massive amounts of wealth that we're seeing are actually more a symptom of a problem than a sign of prosperity. And there's a write-up of this episode along with some additional thoughts on the subject on YDHTY.com. Next week, we've got the Data Monkey back to discuss what has happened this month in an agenda I will not share as, if 2020 has proven anything, it's that the most terrible thing to happen all year is really the soon-to-be second most terrible thing to happen, and I would really rather not tempt fate here. As always, music courtesy of Tech. YDHTY is produced by the Big Gino Jason Putney in the former home of the Republican National Convention, North Carolina. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.